friends. Yes, uh, my name is Charlie, Charlie Salamone. If we've not met, it's a pleasure to meet you. Welcome. We have been doing a series here in the book of Acts, and we've been moving kind of slow because in the beginning, there's something kind of important that's just been hard to get past. Let's read it again, the opening words of the book of Acts. Well, uh, starting in verse 4 at least, goes like this. On one occasion, while he, Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is what we've been considering. This, as I've been trying to understand it, for us has been a very... It's been a very exciting season for me. It's been, it's been a season of excitement. And, well, when I read here, Jesus said it's not for you to know the times or dates. Some translations say the times or the seasons. That just got me thinking. There are times and seasons in life. I looked it up. Maybe you know it. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. There's a, there's a song about it by the birds. It's just taken from here. You know it. Um, to everything under heaven, there's a season. There's a time. There's a time and a season for everything under heaven. This is some of the lines. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to build up, a time to break down, a time to gather stones, and a time to cast away stones. So there's a, a time and a season. And to a certain extent, uh, the Lord, Jesus, expects us to recognize the season that we're in. To a certain degree, that's something that he expects. Actually, well, he expected it of the Pharisees at least. He kind of scolded them for not seeing it. He said, you guys know how to tell the weather, but you don't know how to tell the times. The signs of the times. You can't see what's actually happening. There was something that he expected them to perceive. And then if you, if you go to the Old Testament, it, there's a, a mention of the children of Issachar. It says these people were wise. They were wise because they understood the times. They understood the season they were in. And because they understood it, they knew it had to be done. Because they understood the season, they knew what had to be done. And so all that got me thinking, got me asking, praying, Lord, where do you have us? What season are we in? Let's hold that thought. I'll try to answer it as I see it. Um, the point that I've been saying week after week is what we see here in verse 4, and Jesus says, wait for the gift my father promised. There is a gift that's been promised, 
And the way I see it is the magnitude of what this gift is has not been given the priority in our minds and in our hearts as it demands. As we see not just from the book of Acts, but wider look at the scriptures, what this gift is, it should occupy a lot of our thoughts, a lot of our prayers. Now, here he says, wait for the gift that my father has promised. There's a gift that's been promised, and a couple verses later, you see a little more of what he's talking about. He says, you will be clothed with power. I've been talking about this, I feel like, for a long time, like week after week. My good friend Cheryl here at the church tells me that there's a principle of leadership that um, when you get tired of saying something, that's when the people are just starting to hear it. <laughs> and, and I'm not tired yet. <laughs> so you're going to keep hearing it, I suppose. There's a gift that's been promised. And the promise is a promise of power that will come upon you. On Wednesday nights, after the regular party that we all have, we have this after party with the young adults, and I love that group. And there's a whiteboard where we just put things on the whiteboard to talk about, and we vote. It's a whole thing. If you consider yourself a young adult, you're welcome. Um, I'd love to have you there. But this last Wednesday, on the whiteboard, someone wrote, What power? Question mark. And I knew what he was talking about because, you know, if you've been here with us, I'm constantly talking about this power that's been promised. And he says, what power? What power? Do we know what power? Well, we've talked about it, but let me summarize it before we get into the topic of the day. The power that's promised is, on one hand, an internal power. An internal power for us to feel and to have and to experience it is, I'm going to use some strong words and then I'm going to try to back them up. Um, it is an experience of bliss and ecstasy. Does that sound kind of strong? Does that sound, yeah, maybe, bliss, ecstasy, highest happiness? Well, consider what the scriptures say. I pray that you may know the height, the depth, the breadth of the love of God. And to be filled with all of the fullness of God. Not part, but all. To know the love that surpasses knowledge. A love that goes beyond head theology, but it is felt. And to know and to be filled with all the fullness. Now if there is a higher happiness to be found, tell me what it is. Because if this is not bliss and ecstasy, then what shall be? What is? There is a promise of power, of internal experience, of joy. That is not to be matched, okay? That's the internal promise of power that we've been given. What is the external power? Well, on one hand, it's the things that the people will see in the church. And the most important, really the most important, as we see in the book of Acts, is how the church lives in one mind, in one heart. Meaning a love that the church occupies and has that can be seen as a supernatural kind of love which outsiders see. That is the most important power. But there is, if you read the book of Acts and other scriptures, there is other 
external things associated with this power, and these are the things that are often just more naturally coming to mind. If I was to show up and say, hey, God has promised to give you power, here you go, you might have some thoughts of what that might occupy, and well, Hebrews chapter 2, which I've been reading to you more than once, and I'll read it again, it says it like this. God also testified to the gospel by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Signs, wonders, miracles, things I'm asking for. I would encourage you to do the same. You see, as you read the book of Acts, you can't help having your faith challenged. You can't help feeling like, you know what, I've gotten used, I've gotten accustomed to a certain kind of Christianity, and this seems different than what I read about. This thing that I read about in the book of Acts seems to be greater, more powerful. And some people read it and they kind of intellectualize it. They put it in a little box, maybe their theology allows them to, to just say, well, that was then. That was then, let's just leave that in the past. We should not accept or expect such things as this. But I don't see it that way because of the opening words of the book of Acts that we just read. The book of Acts is laid out um, in in verse 8. You see it on the screen behind me. It says, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as you read the book of Acts, that's kind of like a a summary statement of the whole book because it starts out in Jerusalem and then, you know, you see them go to Judea and then Samaria and then it goes to the other parts of the earth. And you know that they didn't make it here. As in um, Acts chapter 28 is the last chapter of the book. They never made it to Montreal. But the promise goes that far, doesn't it? As in the story continues. I'm convinced that you're supposed to read these great things and you're supposed to say, Lord, why not us? Your your faith is supposed to be challenged in this way. So that's what's happening. We're considering uh, a great power that's been promised to the church and when it comes to a season that we're in, on one hand I could say that we're in a season of asking. Ask and receive. You know that Jesus was referring to this very promise when he said it over and over and over and over again. Ask and receive, ask and receive, that your joy may be full. Ask and receive, that your joy may be full. This is the promise to be filled, to be baptized, to be submerged, to overflow with the Holy Spirit. Ask and receive, that your joy may be full. It's a refrain that echoes. So, what season are we in? Someone might hear what I'm saying and say, ask and receive, ask and receive, ask and receive. Someone might hear me and think that we're in a season of asking and waiting. But that's not what I said. Because I hate waiting. You know? I hate waiting. You can't escape it when you read the Bible that waiting on the Lord is a thing. But there's a kind of waiting that is the worst. I just actually, an hour ago, I heard Tom Petty singing about it, you know? The waiting, that's the hardest part. That's the worst. There's a kind of waiting that is painful and hard. That's not the season of waiting that I see us in. Perhaps we're in a season of waiting, but not that kind, for there's another kind. 
There's a kind of waiting that is in itself a kind of receiving. I think we are in a season of asking and maybe in a season of waiting for the fullness of power that's been promised. Yes, perhaps. But if we're in a season of waiting, it is in a way where it is in itself a receiving. Okay, you don't know what I'm saying. I understand. I'll have to explain. And I will explain it um, in a way that pertains to how the Lord has created our bodies. You know, our bodies were created by God. And if you know a little bit about the science of the brain, and I don't know a lot, but I know a little. There's a certain amount that's kind of almost common knowledge. Uh, God's given us hormones and neurotransmitters. And, well, there's a certain neurotransmitter, a certain hormone that's somewhat well-known to be, uh, it's called the, the happy hormone or the, uh, the feel-good chemical in our brain, the feel-good hormone. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I heard it somewhere. Dopamine. Dopamine. Heard of that? Dopamine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, dopamine is indeed a hormone in our brain that does make you feel good. Yes, yes. And it's often said that dopamine is released, it peaks when we receive a reward in life. When we get something good, that's when there's a spike of dopamine. People often say that. I read it this week. But it's not actually accurate. It's, it's, it's misunderstood. Um, dopamine does not peak when a reward is received. Dopamine actually peaks when a reward is anticipated. Do you understand that? It's not exactly the same thing. The fullness of a dopamine feel-good experience does not peak when you get something. It's when you anticipate, or to say it another way, hope. And beloved, we're in a season of hope. Let me explain this to you if you're not quite getting it. As a child, we did what many families do, the traditional Christmas morning where you open up presents and my oh my, what a time of feeling good. But as I look back on it, I can hardly remember the actual presence. I can hardly remember actually what I unwrapped. But I can remember laying in bed the night before. Wow, the excitement, the, the joy. That's a kind of waiting that I don't mind. Or... Consider this, you go into a fancy restaurant. You go into a fancy restaurant. My wife and I, we went on a date last week. It was wonderful. Now, when you go into a fancy restaurant, you could just go in, and, and if they wanted to, they could be like, here's your food, sit down. That's fast food. That's, 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 that's cheap. You understand if you're paying more money, there's more to be had. And the peak of the experience is often not when they bring you your main course. 
when you sit down and you look around and it's so nice in here and look at the menu. Look at the things that they're going to bring us. Oh, that sounds so good. And feel good anticipation. Do you understand what I'm setting up here? I believe, yes, that we're in a season of waiting, but not, not the kind of waiting that's hard. The kind of waiting that is in itself an experience. Experience. I'm going to say it this way because this is really what I'm talking about. This is the, the biblical word. In my mind, I, I want to say like excitement. It's just a word that you know, speaks to me. I'm excited. I'm anticipating. But the Bible word, which means the same thing, is hope. We're in a season of hope. Hope is rising. Can you feel that? I can feel that. Hope is rising. We are in a season of receiving now. I'm going to show you a passage. And it's going to speak to this very thing. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a word that's repeated here. Hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit, being filled with joy, filled with peace. It's all spoken of here. You know that this is talking about the same promise that's laid out in Acts chapter 1. The same promise that's spoken of in Ephesians. The same promise you're going to see later, it's referred to in 1 Peter. This is an experience, and yes, I've called it one of bliss. Because when I read being filled with all joy and peace... How do, you get it? How do you get higher? How can your joy supersede that? That's the promise. And here, look at this. He says, may the God of hope. Um, what does that mean? The God of hope. Does that mean that he is a God who gives hope? Sure, it means more than that, though. The God of hope. I thought, I thought of this just a little bit ago. We're going to try an exercise, okay? Do something for me. If you trust me, at least a little bit, close your eyes. Close your eyes. Now, um, if you can, picture as best as you can. The face of God. For God who said, let light, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Picture his face. Do that if you can. Now, it's possible that I will need you to make a slight adjustment. Keep going. As you're picturing his face, be sure that he's smiling. Okay, come back with me. The reason I had you do that is 
it's very normal for us to consider God. And it's very normal for us to think of him as a hard man who's not happy. That's the serpent's focus in the beginning of the book, to try to paint God as someone who is not seeking our happiness. If we are to reflect God, we must know who God is. And God is a God of hope. As in, these are the things he feels. When it says God is a God of hope, God himself is looking forward to the future with happiness. And consider this. Jesus, this is John chapter 14, Jesus said, my peace I give you. And then John chapter 15, he says, remain in my love. What I'm speaking of is to understand the affections of God, to understand the character of God. He's happy. It must be understood. He's happy. And as he lives in us, those are the affections that we are to have. The happiness of God. The joy of the Lord. He's happy. Jesus is. Let's, let's go a little deeper into this. Romans chapter 5, beginning verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. God's love has been poured out, poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Poured, not sprinkled, not splashed, poured, overflow, overflow with hope. These are the promises that we should set our minds on. And these are the things that Jesus would have us asking for. Now, this hope, this hope, it says in verse 2, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Boast, it's probably better translated as rejoice. It gets the, the focus better. We rejoice in hope. Um, this is our happiness now. We rejoice in hope. Hope of the glory of God. Hope that's poured out. Now this hope, this hope is connected with believing certain things. So in the last passage that I had you look at in Romans chapter 15, it says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Um, there, is, there is something that we're trusting in that is unleashing or unlocking this joy. And here it is, if you want to call it so, it is theology. It's theology of the past and theology of the future. It's belief in certain things that unlocks this hope, this, this living hope. The hope is not simply the power of positive thinking. It is the power of God. It is a, a living hope inside of us and there are truths associated with that that are connected here. It says it in verse 1, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now this peace is speaking of peace when it comes to when it comes to the judgments of God. This is a peace as in, well, um, a couple weeks ago, I told you that the Holy Spirit, when described as Jesus, was described as an advocate, a lawyer, um, who is doing his work in the world. And a few days ago, I thought of this Old Testament um, vision that was given to a certain prophet that really kind of lays out how this works in the life of the believer. You have um, Zechariah was the prophet and he saw the high priest Joshua was standing there and he was being accused by the devil. You see it's kind of the, the courtroom situation here and the devil is doing the accusing and it's very important to understand that the devil in the scriptures is called the accuser of the brethren, meaning the, the accuser of God's children. That's what he does. There's a passage that says, day and night, he doesn't cease. There is something that the devil wants to use to keep us from experiencing all the hope, all the joy, all the power that's promised there is a tool that he uses to keep us from flying, basically. To keep our hearts from soaring. There is a tool that he uses. And the tool is accusations. And how does he accuse? Well, he points to things that we're probably guilty of. Or maybe we're not guilty of, but maybe we used to be. He accuses. And so... Zechariah had this vision of the high priest being accused, but then the Lord stepped in, the advocate. Rebuke you, Satan. Um, this one has been plucked from the fire. This one has been plucked from the fire, and this is what I need you to do. Take off his dirty clothes and give him pure clothes. Pure this is my point. Here, when it talks about joy, uh, when it talks about hope, rejoicing in hope, when you keep reading, it goes like this in Romans 5. It says, this is why. This is why we have hope. Because God has shown his love to us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Here, when the accuser comes at you, little Christian, Christians, when the accuser comes at you, you will feel and you will wonder, perhaps not um, consciously, but it's almost like an internal loss of stability. Does he really love me? Can I, does, does he really love me? And the accuser, it's coming at you, you're feeling it, whether you're thinking it or not, you're feeling it. That's, that's how he does his work. And the message is this. God showed his love for us in this while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning, at, when you were at your worst. Like now, if you're a believer, you care. Maybe you fail eight times a day, maybe more. But you care. If you're a believer, you care. You want to live for him. You want to follow him. When you didn't care. When you were doing your own thing and you were happy to do your own thing. Even then he loved you. 
Even then he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And what's spoken of here in Romans, if you keep reading, is if he loved you then, when you were a sinner, now how much more that you've been reconciled to him through faith, how much more will you be saved on the day of his coming? On the day of judgment, how much more will you be safe with pure, pure, pure clothes? The pure clothes, the pure righteousness of Jesus given to us. Jesus died for our sins. This is at the heart of the truth by which we stand and we trust. And the joy that we have, the hope that we have is ours because of what Jesus did. Jesus died for our sins. Our sins are washed away. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. And not only peace, keep reading, not only peace, but hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word that I'm speaking of that theologians often use is something called assurance. We have assurance. We can speak about salvation, and we're aware if we read the Bible that there is a coming day of judgment what we long for and what the Spirit wants to give us is assurance, confidence, not in ourselves, but confidence in the truth laid out, that he's a Savior who saves those who call upon him, those who believe in him. Assurance. But it says here, you have to catch it, it says here, not only so, but we also glory, we also rejoice in our sufferings. And you keep reading it, and it basically says, sufferings, it produces hope. It's what we're, what we're longing for, hope. Looking to the future with happiness and expectation. Sufferings has a way of producing hope. And the hope, once more, is the hope of knowing that you're his. Now, it wasn't that long ago, after church, I spoke with a woman, and she told me that she had been, you know, a Christian for much of her life, for all of her life. But she had been asked recently the question of, well, do you know that you're saved? Do you know that you really have him? This, it was really a question of assurance. And she thought, you know what? I want this assurance, so I'm going to seek this out. And she told me that she began to seek God in a new way. And she said, ever since I started doing that, I remember exactly what she said. She said, ever since I started doing that, everything has been going very horrible. Like all these things have been happening, like, like really hard things. And what I see here is sometimes this is how God answers that prayer. Um, he wants to give you a hope that is higher than this world. And it seems to be that sufferings has a way of bringing us there. I say this to you who are perhaps in the midst of your own sufferings. There is a way. There is a way to, how do I say, graduate, if that. As in, there is a way where you can no longer be brought down. There is a way. And it says here, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. If you can get to the point where you rejoice in your sufferings, the devil no longer has anything on you. 
In the book of James, he says, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy when you suffer, when you experience hardship. Consider it pure joy. And you keep reading, and he says, so that you may be perfect, lacking nothing. If you can get to the point where hard things you can look at and you can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, the devil can no longer touch you. He's got nothing else. Um, I'm going to show you one more passage that's going to hopefully tie the things that I've been talking about. Hopefully going to tie it all together. Um, this is 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, there's a lot here. But you see, this is what we've been speaking about, a living hope. A living hope that can never perish. A living hope that is shielded by God's power, verse 5. It's not just positive thinking. This is the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts, a living hope. The God of hope is alive in us. And look at verse 4 for a second. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Verse 3, earlier it says, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is a truth at play here that also needs to be considered. At the center of our hope is the truth of the resurrection. This is something I think about. I know it's true. If I could see Jesus, if I could see Jesus, if I... More than see him. If I could just sit down, like give me one hour. If I could sit down with him and have a meal and see his body resurrected, I'm convinced that I would never fear anything again. Nothing would bother me. The things that would normally trouble me. I mean, maybe this is overthinking my own faith or what. But the truth is, for all of us, if we could see him in his resurrected body and know that this is the inheritance waiting for us, he is the first fruit of the resurrection, meaning his resurrection is a sign and a proof for our resurrection, that we will be receiving new bodies on a new earth, a resurrected 
a new Jerusalem, a new city, if, we, if, if the truth of our inheritance, what has been promised to us, this is that forward-looking, this is that we're, we're here now and it's Christmas Eve and the presents are tomorrow, this is the forward-looking of the promise of our inheritance, the resurrection, the resurrected body, the new city, here on earth, a material city of glory, if we could wrap our minds around that even a little bit, the things in this life would not trouble us. This is our promise. This is our hope. But as it goes in this life, one of the reasons that we don't often experience the fullness of hope of this great promise is because our minds are focused on Temporary hopes. Isn't that right? Temporary treasures that cannot actually satisfy little things of this fleeting world that we put our hope in rather than the great hope. So the way that it works is, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer. Grief of many kinds. As in, it's refining. That's what it says. This faith, you do have faith. You do have faith. But it needs to be refined. And this is the goal of this refining. That it may result in praise, glory, and honor. Though you've not seen him, verse 8, though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled. Hear this. Filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. What's that speaking of? The same promise. Do you see it? There's a promise of what I call ecstasy and bliss. It's the highest happiness. Joy unspeakable. Inexpressible joy. Is there a higher joy? No. And is he talking about something to have later? No. This joy is connected with the waiting. He said, now, now you are receiving the end result of your faith. Now. Well, we know it's coming later. We know the end result of our faith is later. It's the inheritance. It's the, the new bodies, the new city. We know that's the fullness of our inheritance. But he's saying now you are receiving it through hope. Through hope, the power of the Holy Spirit, the hope that he himself is a foretaste of glory. The happiness now can be felt. And this is what we're longing for. And this brings me back to where I started. The children of Issachar were called wise because they understood the times, they understood the season, and they understood what to do. They understood what to do about it. What is the season that we are in? We are in a season of hope. We're in a season of waiting, but not the kind of waiting that's just hard waiting. The waiting that is filled with happiness and excitement and anticipation and hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit, hope. So what are we to do about it? They understood the times and they understood what to do. What should we do with such a great promise? And I thought, well, let's consider what they did. What did they do? When Jesus said, you're going to receive power, wait for the gift, wait for the promise, what did they do? Well, let's return to the book of Acts just for a moment. And beginning in verse 12, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Peter and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. 
They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Prayer, prayer without hope is a laborious, toilsome task. But with hope, prayer is an experience of receiving. Asking and receiving, it's that asking, it builds our hope, it builds our happiness. Um, as I've been speaking about revival, there's that word that I don't have time to define, but it's essentially this. When the church is revived to the life that we read about, um, there has been, there has been uh, in the minds of some, which is very natural, this idea that we're going to take a season and we're all praying for revival. Wait, 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 pray, pray, pray. And I suppose that is the season that we should be in, praying for more, ask and receive, ask and receive. But there's a kind of praying that doesn't sound very exciting. It rather just sounds hard. You know what I mean? There's a kind of praying that's kind of associated with waiting that's not what I have in mind for us. At the same time, there's a kind of praying that is filled with hope, that is filled with happiness. Um, I, I think about when Elijah challenged the false prophets on the mountain and the way that they sought, the way that the false prophets sought after their false god. That seemed hard. You know, they were shouting for him, and Elijah, he, he kind of made fun of them. And he's like, shout louder! And they shouted louder. And they even started, like, cutting themselves, thinking that if we're devoted enough, and we really do this, then we'll get what we seek after. You know, it sounds hard. But scriptures tell you, no one paid attention to their shouts. No one listened to all their human effort. That's not the kind of prayers that God answers. Meanwhile, Elijah, he just gets up and he says, Lord, let it be known today that you are God and that I am your servant and that you're calling us back to you. And fire from heaven fell. Um, there's a kind of prayer that is hard and achieves nothing. And there's a kind of prayer that is filled with joy and happiness and well, the word I've been using, hope. Hope. Yes, I believe we're in a season of waiting, but it's the good kind of waiting. We're in a season of asking, but it's the confident asking. It's the asking for the things that God has promised. Um, we're going to do communion. I'm going to invite the band back up. We're going to do communion.